Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11, the 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, beginning at verse 8, and we'll read through verse 16. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Jacob and Isaac, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This is the Word of God. I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask God the Spirit's aid and assistance as we hear this Word. Please pray with me. O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Quicken our hearts to have confidence in these words and help us to be just not hearers only, but doers as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I am uh, sympathetic with the description of camping, which I once heard. Camping is pretending that you are homeless. (laughs) I remember my family of four went from the Detroit area up to Sleeping Bear Dunes on the western Michigan uh, shore of uh, Lake Michigan to camp and uh, My son and I left in the first vehicle, which was packed to the gills. And my wife and daughter came along a little later in the second vehicle, which was packed to the gills. And I remember the sideways glance of the gas station operator when he learned that it was only for four people that I had packed my vehicle. I didn't have the courage to tell him there was a second one coming a short distance later. And, of course, we had to carry all of our equipment in, which took all the help of the ten friends that we were meeting there. And in the middle of the thunderstorm and downpour when we were leaving, it took their help as well to bring everything back, most of which had not been touched or used during the whole trip. Camping is pretended homelessness. 
And I guess that makes backyard camping, if you're a child and you've ever camped in the backyard, I guess that makes backyard camping pretending to pretend you're homeless. And it's actually, camping is uh, something of a picture to compare with the challenges of these verses from the letter to the Hebrews. Because the original recipients of this letter uh, weren't camping, they were in, the, in a wilderness of sorts. Uh, the writer of Hebrews knows that they are Jewish believers who are considering turning back to the ways of their fathers after having begun to follow Christ. And they're tempted to turn back to the ways of their fathers because life on the Christian pilgrimage has become difficult. And like the first generation out of Egypt, even as they had the promise of the promised land before them, as their faith waned in the midst of the wilderness, they wanted to go back even to the slavery of Egypt. And so the writer of Hebrews draws upon that Exodus story to say, don't lose heart in the wilderness, because the God who promised the inheritance that it's at the end is the same God who is with you on the journey. And that's the challenge to us in the Christian life. When we accept the call of faith to trust God, to follow Jesus Christ, we embark upon a journey, a journey toward a destination, which these verses here call a city. But in the midst of the journey, life can become difficult and challenging. And we can be tempted to want to turn back to what was once familiar, what was once comfortable. But more subtly than that, I think, for Christians, much of the time, or in many instances, it's really a form of camping. Pretending to be on a pilgrimage from one place to another, but all the while trying to bring along the conveniences and comforts of the city from which God has called us, the city of this world. And so we need to take these verses of Scripture and shine them on our own lives to understand that we've been given a citizenship by God, that we are on a journey to inherit that citizenship, and that it will require of us faith, trust in God along the journey. And particularly trust in order to live as citizens of this new city while we are on the journey. So if you have ever become discouraged or doubtful, or shall I say comfortable, on the pilgrimage of the Christian life, these verses are for you as well as for me. So let's look at the story of Abraham as the writer of Hebrews has drawn upon it to, first of all, test us to see if we are truly on this pilgrimage, and then to understand what this pilgrimage of faith truly is. And the first thing we'll see in the first two or three verses, rather, of this passage is that faith calls us to renounce a citizenship. That faith calls us to renounce a citizenship. Look, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham lived in what is today modern-day modern Iraq. It was 
Ur of the Chaldees. You read about it in Genesis chapter 11 at the end and beginning of chapter 12. It was a very developed civilization. He was a man of reputation there based on his first name, Abram, exalted father. And he had much to lose by leaving the great civilization of Ur and the extended family networks and to to only bring with him what he could manage to take on the way. So Abraham, when he answered God's call, he said a no. And this is one application of this for our lives, that when a person, when a man or a woman says yes to Jesus Christ, they also must say a no. To say a no to this world. To say a no, and I mean a no to this world in the sense of the world's way of doing things, the things the world values that are contradictory uh, to the ways of God. Because Abram renounced a very valuable citizenship in order to begin this journey. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You see, Abram had not scouted out and gone on the tour of the uh, housing development with the real estate agent and picked his lot and sat down with the architect and looked at the uh, floor plans. He had seen none of that. He said his no simply because of the promise of God. And what God was offering him, Abraham judged by faith to be superior to what he already possessed. And this is what it means to begin the Christian life. It is to believe that what God offers in his promises is superior to what is ours or what could be ours if we live and work by our own wits and efforts. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Genesis 12 tells us that when he got to the promised land, it was occupied. There were Canaanites up and down the land, worshipers of other gods, who themselves warred among one another, but who would also see a threat such as an exalted patriarch as Abraham as someone also to make war with. And Abram lived as a renter, if you will. In fact, there's this beautiful, sweet story of uh, when his wife, his dear wife Sarah dies, and, and one of the Canaanite kings says, I will give you a grave for her, a, a cave in which she can be buried. And Abram understands the ways of the world, and he says, no, I'm not going to take a gift from you. Just like he would not pay tribute to the king of Sodom, when he rescued his nephew Lot, he would not buy, he would not receive as a gift, rather, from a Canaanite king a grave for his wife because he knew to be indebted to the world is to be impeded from trusting God. And so Abram's faith here teaches us that faith calls us to renounce a citizenship. You see it all over the world right now with the migration crisis. People are willing to leave behind homelands, families, familiar places, their traditions, and all manner of things to live in what they 
think to be a better place. And you can see often uh, they, they perish along the way, or when they get there, they find out that it's not what they thought it would be. Uh, we've read stories recently, perhaps, of the, uh, the great reverse migration of South Asians, of Indians and Pakistanis back to Pakistan and India because America didn't turn out to be the dreamland they thought. You see, this is in contrast to Abram, that he went based on a promise because of the character of the one who promised and because of the faithfulness of the one who promised. Jesus told a parable that teaches us this same lesson. There was a man who found a pearl of great price, and he went and sold everything he had so he could purchase it. And there was a man who found a treasure in a field, and he went away and sold everything that he had so he could buy that treasure in the field. You see, this is, this is the beginning of faith. It's not an easy beginning. But its glory is in the promise of the one who calls us to faith. Now, perhaps you are someone who has not yet decided to begin that pilgrimage. Uh, but what you do know, and this is probably why you're in a place like this on a day like this, is that the citizenship you have just isn't all that great. And that you're looking for a better country, the kind of better country these verses talk about. Well, here's the invitation. Saying yes to Christ is good news. Just as much as saying no to our earthly citizenship is part of the good news. We are freed from those things which, just like Israel and Egypt, enslave us so that we can serve and follow a living and true God who can be trusted. So faith calls us to renounce a citizenship, but then we learn that faith calls us to receive an inheritance, and that's found in verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, if you're using a different translation than the ESV translation we use here, you may have a little bit different. This is a very difficult verse to translate from its original Greek, but the sense of it is the same. Whether it was Sarah herself received power to conceive, or whether Abraham is the one mentioned here instead of Sarah, it applies equally to Sarah and Abraham. A barren aged woman and a, an infertile aged man somehow conceive a child at advanced age, even after their barrenness has been established as a fact. And so they received if you will, tokens of God's promise. They received down, a down payment on their inheritance. Isaac was born, but Isaac wasn't the full inheritance. Isaac was a necessary means to the inheritance. Without an heir, there could be no inheritance. Without an heir, without a progeny, there could be no po- uh, posterity. The, the, the countless descendants of Abraham that were part of the promise God made. Who could then occupy the land that God had promised to give them? And so God gave them tokens of his promises in order to prove his faithfulness. 
And in this respect, we stand in such a, a greater position than Abraham and Sarah. We not only can look back and see the promise, the promised son Isaac and 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 the son of Isaac Jacob and and the and the twelve sons of Jacob, the heads of the tribes of Israel and the multitude of Israel that came out of Egypt after four hundred years of slavery and entered into the land and possessed the land and and the establishment of God's king in the promised land, King David, and the coming of God's presence to the promised land and the building of the temple. We not only see all of the promises of the Old Testament being fulfilled progressively, but we have also a vantage point that Abraham and Sarah and all of these named in Hebrews chapter 11 don't. We see that God has answered all of his promises in his son, Jesus Christ. All these died in faith without receiving what had been promised. We're told in verse 13. But we can look back and we can say, God is a promise-keeping God. And even while in the midst of it, it perhaps seemed like God was slow about His promises, God's slowness about His promises proves His power. God doesn't simply strike when the opportunity presents itself so he can keep a promise, but he marches history forward, step by step, age by age, yes by yes, so that we can look back on Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and see God is a God who not only can be trusted, but who will be trusted. That God is not just faithful to His Word, but He is powerful to keep His Word. It's one thing to have a sincere commitment from someone, but it's another thing altogether for someone to have the utter, absolute, and sovereign ability to keep their commitment. And in God, we have both. We have a God who is both faithful, but also is powerful to do His will, to keep His Word And so we see that faith offers an inheritance. And faith calls us to rest upon that inheritance. That is, when when we're called to follow Christ, we are not called to run and try to keep up with somebody running ahead of us. But rather, we are called to stand upon Christ Himself as the keeping of God's promises. God can be trusted. And so for these first century Christians who were thinking of turning back to the ways of their forefathers, to what was comfortable, to to going back to Egypt, if you will, God says, look what I have already given you. I've given you my son. You will be safe through the wilderness. And no matter what comes upon you in the wilderness, I will preserve you and bring you to my promised land. So faith teaches us to renounce a citizenship. It teaches us to receive an inheritance. All that is promised to us in Christ is given to us in Christ. But thirdly, faith calls us to recognize where we are on the pilgrimage. That faith calls us to recognize where we are on the pilgrimage. If you look at verses 13 through 15, now the writer of Hebrews is turning from the story of Abraham and Sarah to to now turn to the reader, turn to us. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they saw the promises of God fulfilled in the distance, and they were willing to keep walking by faith. And as a result, they had a certain relationship to the place where they lived and the time in which they lived. They were pilgrims. They were sojourners. Just as Abraham, when he first came into the promised land, was a renter. So God's people all through the ages have been renters, not owners. I don't know how much you've traveled outside of uh, your home country, if it's the U.S. or uh, other countries, but um, uh, the farther you get from home, the sometimes the less you feel you fit in. I've been into the stands of Central Asia. I can't even read the Pepsi signs. I can't, I, 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 I can't order at McDonald's even. Because there is no McDonald's. I, uh, I don't look like everybody else. And I can't tell you how sweet it is as you as I would come from Central Asia and then into Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Detroit and then wherever else I was going in the U.S., to look for those little blue passports. Because when you get on a plane in Central Asia, you don't see many of them. You realize how different you are. Well, to be back in the good old U.S. of A., where everybody has a blue passport, to me that is a very comforting and enjoyable time of a long trip away from home. But you see, that plays in different ways. Because as Christians, we live in a world that is passing away, and we are to live as citizens of a world which is coming. And we're constantly having to negotiate both of those citizenships. They they sometimes fit nicely together. There's a there's an early there's a letter written in the first couple of centuries of the church called the Epistle of Diognetus, where it extols the virtues of Christians as citizens. They keep their promises. They do good for others. Citizenship and discipleship sometimes fit very well together. But there are other times where citizenship and discipleship are in direct confrontation and conflict with one another. What did Peter say? I must obey God rather than man. Because Caesar told him to be silent. I must obey God rather than man. And there are times, very clear-cut times in life, where our citizenships are in direct conflict. Where we must obey God rather than man. But there is also this murky middle. Not when citizenship and discipleship get along, and not even when discipleship and citizenship are in direct confrontation with one another, but but you, you can call it the frog in the kettle, murky middle, where it seems like being a follower of Christ follows nicely with the contours of citizenship. But there's a very subtle way in which our sense of citizenship in God's kingdom gets degraded, gets eroded, gets compromised. If you buy a new pair of shoes, which I do about every 20 years, when you first put them on, they hurt. 
And, um, you, but, but you know they're the right size and they're good quality and they're going to last a long time. So, so you keep wearing them to do what? To break them in. Well, one of two things happens when you experience that. One thing that happens is the shoe changes, but the other thing that happens is the foot changes. And when we try to figure this out, this citizenship versus discipleship, there are ways often in which discipleship is converted into citizenship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German theologian and pastor who opposed uh, Hitler and the Third Reich, he said, when religion becomes civil, it ceases to be either. And he meant a couple of things by saying that. First of all, he meant that when being a follower of Christ fits so nicely with the culture, it means you're no longer really following Christ. But also he meant that religion can become the most beastly, violent, oppressive way of motivating and directing people. You know, Bonhoeffer was surrounded by pastors and churches that were excited because of the, the new sense of nationalism introduced by Hitler in the Third Reich. And for God and country was a very easy sell. I recently uh, uncovered, once again, a poem of Mark Twain. It's not a poem, actually. It's more of a parable. It's called The War Prayer. A few people I meet have actually heard of it. But uh, Twain had seen some of the brutalities of the Spanish-American War and then the Philippine resurge, a guerrilla war, which is some of the most violent and and cruel actions ever taken by American military in, in its history. And so uh, Twain realized how the name of God had been invoked to send armies into battle. And so he wrote the the war prayer, which was the unspoken part of praying for victory in war. And it's a sobering and disturbing prayer. He asked even that it not be printed until after he was dead himself. But you see, what... What often looks like to us for God and country really is just merely for country. And we should be extremely suspect of people in the public sphere who use the name of God to garner support for their agenda. No matter what their political persuasion be. Uh, We are very easily led as the people of God when our leaders invoke the name of God whether they be on the right or the left. You see, Christian citizens have to constantly be discerning, is this discipleship or merely citizenship? And is it a case where they get along well? Is it a case where they're in direct contradiction? Or is it a case in which citizenship is compromising my discipleship, but it's not quite so easy to tell? And you have this from the banal, from the mundane, all the way to the great things. You know, I grew up in the Midwest where a good neighbor is somebody who cut their yard and nobody else's. You did for yourself. That was the gospel of of Mid-America that I grew up with. But that gospel of Mid-America also implied that if you're poor, it's because you're unrighteous. And that everyone should pay for their own sins. 
You get yourself in trouble, you get yourself out. Or I will help you if you endure enough shame to crawl back on your hands and feet. Nothing like the father or the prodigal son. It's not simple, is it? But a, a wonderful, wonderful cultural virtues can end up being directly contrary to being followers of Christ. They wanted leeks and onions back in Egypt. They even wanted the nice graves that they had in Egypt, those Israelites in the wilderness then. They would have rather had the whip of slavery than the bread of heaven because it required uncertainty, trust, a willingness to follow God. So we see that faith calls us to renounce the citizenship. Faith calls us to receive an inheritance. And faith calls us to recognize where we are in the journey that constitutes the Christian life. But the last thing these verses will indicate to us is faith resounds God's faithfulness. Faith resounds God's faithfulness. That's in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, sometimes with our right and due emphasis upon God's grace, uh, we think of shame as um, something that's been resolved between us and God, and it has, and that is true. But notice here now, it's not our shame that's being mentioned here. It is whether God is ashamed or not. And there is a certain kind of people, there's a certain group of people of which God is not ashamed. That is, when the relatives come, He's willing to introduce them. He is willing to, in human terms, to tell others about them. My son is on his way to Stetson for his junior year today. I am not ashamed to call him my son. He has done very well. And I don't mean simply by getting great grades. He's a great human being. He's a sincere and earnest follower of Christ. He is mature in his thoughts. He directs his emotions in good and full ways that uh, I know he's not perfect, but I'm still waiting to find out how he's not. I could remind him of times when he wasn't, but we were simply during those times, we were on our way to who he is today. Those are not things that define him any more than, thank God, those things in my life define me who I am today. You see, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they renounced glorious earthly citizenships. Because they believed that what God had promised them was better than they had and that he was able and would keep his promise to give them an inheritance. And they were, he was not, he's not ashamed to be called their God because they understood that they were always on the way to something better, that there was a better kingdom, a better city, like the second generation of Israelites. There's this wonderful scene by Mount Sinai. Israel has just made, it's, it's a, 
its, 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 its first uh, 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 religious architectural undertaking, the, go- the golden calf. And now Moses is begging God not to judge them. And you can boil that whole incident, Exodus 33 and 34, down to this. Moses understood that to have the promised land without God was to have nothing. But to have God didn't even require the promised land because to have God was to have everything. That the promised land was a place they were headed, but the promised land had already come to meet them in the wilderness because they ate bread from heaven every day and they drank water from the rock. And the glory cloud stood over them by day to shelter them from the sun and warmed them by night against the cool of the wilderness desert. You see, they had everything they could ever want because God was among them. This is what Psalm 87 is about. God is in the midst of her. She won't be moved. Who? Zion, the city of God. And all our springs of joy are to be in her, the psalm says. You say, well, that's, that's hard. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it's hard to glorify God in the wilderness. And it would be if we were just in the wilderness. But I want to peek ahead, spoiler alert, to what chapter 12, verse 22 says. Because we've been told once that all these died in faith without receiving the promise. And if we read on, we would see again in verse 39, all these did not receive what was promised. But in chapter 12, verse 22, we are told something very remarkable. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, we're already there. How is it that we're already there? How is it that we're already in the promised land? Because of what happens in between. Christ entered in. Christ finished the race. Christ kept the faith. So that now that Christ, seated at the right hand of God, not only has exalted Christ to God's right hand, but has brought us to the right hand of God. Colossians 3, verse 1, If you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 tells us we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Christians live in two places at once by faith in Christ. We live now here on this earth and we live in the heaven of heavens at the right hand of God. And so when we worship God on earth, in Christ we are worshiping Him also with all the saints in the midst of the myriad of angels, even while we have our feet here on the ground. And this is why it can be said of Christians, not that they are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good, but because they are heavenly minded, they are of genuine earthly good. See, we've been called to live out a pilgrimage which resounds God's faithfulness. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us at the end of this great chapter about all these in verse 32. What shall I say about them? He's running out of ink and running out of paper. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, 
became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. This is what living out our citizenship in Christ is to cause the world to conclude. We are not worthy of these people of God. What is the reputation of Christians today? And it's going to vary as much as Christians vary and as much as the experience of people who know Christians. But this is to be our aspiration, that when people come into contact with followers of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, they are to see in us a world which is so much better than the world as it is. And not a world just of some bodiless existence for eternity, but the writer of Hebrews, to, I'm sorry, the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, tells us it's a city which is going to one day descend from heaven and show itself to the whole world, the city of God. Renouncing a citizenship, receiving an inheritance, recognizing our place in faith journey, and living pilgrim lives that resound God's faithfulness. In 1997, Charles Frazier wrote his first big novel. Some of you have no doubt read it or seen a movie adaptation of it. The name of it is Cold Mountain. And it's about a Confederate soldier who becomes disillusioned with all that's happening, and he deserts. And the reason he deserts is because he's from a place called Cold Mountain. And all throughout the story, you're getting scenes of Cold Mountain. It's beauty, the smells, the, the, the trees, the skies, uh, the, the woman that he loves who's there waiting for him to return. And no matter where he was during the war, in his heart, he was at Cold Mountain. Along the way, his journey back to Cold Mountain, he runs into a preacher who's a hypocrite typecasting, I suppose. Um, and he exposes the preacher, and the, and the people of the town run the preacher away. And so the so soldier continues his homeward journey toward, toward Coral Mountain, but he runs into the preacher along the way. And he thinks there's going to be a fight between them. But the preacher says, hey, I'd like to travel with you. Because I'm a pilgrim just like you. But then the preacher stops, and now he has, for once, a flash of insight. He says, but maybe I speak too soon. Not all who, are pil- not all who wander are pilgrims. Pilgrims are people going to a place that is so beloved in their heart that their whole life's journey is defined by reaching that place, and their whole journey along the way is shaped by their citizenship in that place. Many people feel homeless in the world. The world's a pretty bad place sometimes. At the very best, it's bad, it's, it's bad some of the time. But being homeless in the world is not the same as being a pilgrim whose heart 
in whose pathways are in are the roads to in whose heart are the pathways to Zion, as the psalmist said. We're to live our lives now and every step along the way in light of the citizenship which is ours in Christ, so that we're not just camping, waiting until we can go back, but rather that we are pilgrims whose hope, whose hearts, whose lives are aimed forward at the city which God has already established in His Son, Jesus Christ. May God make us willing and able. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for establishing your city as its architect and its founder, providing for us a citizenship which will not pass away. Help us now to live our citizenship in the midst of a world which so desperately needs you, so that when people meet us and get to know us and observe us, they will say, tell me about your city. Tell me about your king. Help us to do that, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.